taken a break the last few times that I've preached, and we've sidetracked into other things, but now we'll come back to this wonderful book by the Apostle Paul and look at some of the encouraging insights and some of the convicting insights that he has here as he has a brief biography for us of what his life looked like in Judaism. So let's read now verses 1 through 11, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship God by the spirit who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh I have more circumcised on the 8th day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law a Pharisee as to zeal a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's turn once again to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, as we come to your holy word now, We would pray and ask for the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would help us, and that you'd give us great insights, and that you'd help us to make those heart changes necessary to walk in a worthy manner of the gospel, all for the glory of God and the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Sex money, and poor communication. Those are three areas of marital strife that often uh, couples encounter throughout their marriage. As we start our marriage, some things might be more difficult than others. Like you have various differences, like even arranging the dishwasher. Some people load from back to front, others from front to back. I'm a back-to-front person. Tammy is a front-to-back person. And so you can see the, the strife that that causes when I go in and rearrange things. Is there anyone else here who rearranges the dishwasher because their spouse doesn't, hasn't quite got it yet? No? I don't believe you. There's got to be a few other ones. Yes, there are. Good. I'm not the only strange one that does that. But there are different things like this that aren't as serious in a relationship as those other things that I mentioned. And another question that that marriage couples encounter is how you are going to install the toilet paper roll. Is it going to go over the top or under the bottom? And this is this is a, actually a debate online. People, there are polls about this. There, there are different things about this. I couldn't care less myself. But early on in our marriage, I was very, very sure that Tammy insisted 
that the toilet paper roll come out the bottom. Insisted on it. And so for 25 years, I did it that way. Because I thought that I was pleasing her in this very small thing. Didn't matter to me. I'll do it over the top, underneath, whatever. It doesn't matter. Until we were, we were doing some counseling with a young couple several years ago. And uh, I mentioned the differences that we have when we get married and some of these things, the dishwasher, the toothpaste, all those traditional things that we talk about. And also uh, I mentioned the toilet paper roll. And I said how Tammy insisted that it came out the bottom. Until she said, no, I didn't. I never said that at all. I couldn't care less if it comes out the bottom or the top. (laughs) And for 25 years, I had thought about how to install the toilet paper roll. Now, that's a very silly illustration to illustrate something very important in our text. For decades, for his entire life, the Apostle Paul was pursuing God in the entirely wrong way. And we read about his conversion in the book of Acts, and we read about that through Acts chapter 7 and then through chapter 9. And it is quite a shocking thing that we see there, this account of the Apostle Paul and his conversion. It is actually staggering when we read what is taking place in there. And we read some of that earlier, and unfortunately we can't read the entire passage. But we see there in chapter 9 and verse 9 that for three days, the Apostle Paul says, it's, the text says, for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Christ confronts the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He struck off the horse. He can't see, he can't eat, he can't drink for three days. Now we might wonder, what's going on in that period of three days? What is the Apostle Paul thinking about in that period of three days? And we can fill in some of the blanks with a pretty good educated guess on some of the things that he was thinking about. He was probably thinking about Stephen and his stoning just a few days prior. He was probably thinking of the countenance of Stephen when he looked up into the heavens and saw the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and how his countenance would have glowed even though he's being executed at the time. And the Apostle Paul would have thought, then Saul would have thought, this guy has something that I've been laboring for my entire life. Peace with God. Peace with God. He had labored his whole life to have that type of relationship with the living God that Stephen had. And he was rejecting Stephen. He wasn't listening to the things Stephen was saying, but yet... In that period of three days, perhaps he was recounting that sermon that Stephen was preaching. And those words were ringing in his ears. That you guys reject the law. You say you keep it, but you are rejecting the law. But I think foundationally, what the Apostle Paul realized during that time, that foundationally, Foundationally, he had been wrong about his relationship and his approach to God for his entire life. Everything was wasted. Everything was rejected by God. Everything was not pleasing God. In fact, it was bringing condemnation of God upon himself. And physically he's blinded, but spiritually he could begin to see like never before. He was blinded physically, 
But yet God was opening his eyes to the wonder, to the amazement of the grace of God. And it is, as one commentator stated at Paul's encounter with Christ, that he had the painful discovery that he was utterly unworthy of God, that he was utterly unfit for heaven, that he was utterly bereft of salvation. And the joyful discovery that in that unworthy, unfit, useless predicament, Christ had sought him, Christ had humbled him, and Christ had saved him. And my question is, has that happened to you? Have you been humbled by your sin and turned to Christ in faith and in repentance? Have you made that painful discovery that you too are unworthy of God? And your only reaction is to flee to Christ. That's the only reaction we can have is to flee to Christ. Now Paul's letter to the Philippian church is full of encouragement and it's also full of joy. And we see him again talk about joy in verse 1 of this passage. But he turns very quickly to give a stern warning about people who want to steal your joy. Religious people who want to steal your joy. And he says there, finally... In verse 1, finally, but he's not quite done. He's like the preacher who can't take time very well. He's not quite done. And again, he adds finally in chapter 4 and verse 8 when he is closer to being finished. But here finally means furthermore. He's got more things that he wants to add to them. And he says, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe to you. I've warned you before. I'm going to warn you again about these people who want to come in and steal your joy. And he's setting them up for what comes next. As a good elder, he has a duty to warn. And that's what he does here. He warns them. Look out for the dogs or beware. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship God, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul warns in different epistles about the Judaizers. Colossians 2, Galatians 2, all over his, his writings, he warns about the Judaizers and here he does it again. He carries a big sign around with him that says, Beware of dog. Beware of dog. Beware of these dogs. Beware of dog. Why is he speaking so harshly about these people? Shouldn't he be more tolerant? Isn't that what we often do in our day? We kind of pair around the rough edges and try to be more palatable to the culture around us. Not the Apostle Paul. He was, he was calling out false teaching and he would use the most stern means possible to do it. He calls them dogs. And what was wrong with the Judaizers is that they taught that Christ was not enough for salvation. You can have Jesus, but you've also got to have the, the ceremonial laws. You can have Jesus, but you've also got to be circumcised. They had all these additions that had to be kept alongside of also believing in Jesus. So they had this warp view of Christianity. It was Jesus plus these other things that they were adding. And so they would follow Paul around, infiltrate the fellowships that Paul had been to. And these new believers that were there and vulnerable to false teaching, these Judaizers would come in and they would teach them the law, that they had to keep the law as well. And so Paul calls them dogs, and dogs are to be kept outside. 
And you'll remember that dogs is often a derogatory term that the Jews called the Gentiles. They called them dogs because they were outside the house of Israel. They were dogs. Dogs are to be kept outside and these are dogs. And so the Apostle Paul flips it around on them and calls them the dogs, these Judaizers. And he also calls them evildoers because their supposed good works are attacking the work of Christ. And therefore, these supposed good works become evil works. They are evil doers. And he also says that they are those who mutilate the flesh. Literally, the mutilation. Circumcision becomes nothing more than mutilation of the flesh. It's a meaningless outward sign. What is important is the heart is circumcised. And we read about that in Deuteronomy, and we read about that from the preaching of Stephen. And also we see that in Romans 2.29, circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Circumcision is always by the heart. It always has been by the heart. Yes, the nation of Israel had that as a sign that they were the covenant people of God. But the law was to expose us. The law exposes us. It's a mirror for us to stand in and then flee to Christ when we see our wickedness. We see that in Galatians 2.21. It exposes us. It drives us to Christ and the righteousness that we receive in Christ. And then we see in verse 3 the contrast between the Judaizers and true Christianity. New New Testament Christians are to worship by the Spirit. It's inside. They glory in Christ not in themselves. And they put no confidence in themselves for salvation. We know that we are unworthy of the gift of salvation. We put no confidence in the flesh. And that should cause us all to breathe a big sigh of relief. A big sigh of relief. We can go to Christ for the righteousness that we need. We don't have to keep the law for the righteousness. Yes, we still have the moral law of God. Yes, we still recite and read the Ten Commandments. Yes, we still want to keep that moral law of God. But the ceremonial law has passed away. All those types and shadows are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we flee to Christ. We have no confidence in the flesh. But if we were to, Paul says... If you want to have confidence in the flesh, then I would be at the top of the heap. And so he gives us this bit of a picture of his life in Judaism, this picture of an autobiography of himself, a sketch of his credentials as a Jew. And we see that in verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So if you want to turn to works righteousness, I am at the top of the heap. No one exceeded me. I was at the top of the class. If you had spoken to Saul of Tarsus and said, Saul, are you going to heaven? You know how we do that sometimes in our, when we talk to different people about the Lord Jesus? We say, are you going to heaven? You know, how would you know? Do you believe in eternity? These types of questions. If we were to ask that of the apostle Paul, what would be his answer? Absolutely. And what would he point to? The outline that we see in verses 5 and verses 6. We see Paul's credentials in Judaism in seven different clauses here. And the first four are to do with Paul's privileges by birth. His privileges by birth. And then 
the last three things deal with Paul's choices as an adult Jew. That he didn't just have these things by birthright, but he excelled in these things. He was zealous in these things. And so we're just quickly going to skim over these. Circumcised on the eighth day. Well, what does that mean? That means he has a family heritage. That means that his family was Jewish. He's Saul of Tarsus in the Greco-Roman world, but yet they were Hebrew. They were Jewish people. He had a Jewish family. And if they had a boy, that boy would be circumcised on the eighth day. And secondly, he's of the people of Israel. All of the privileges of that privileged nation of Israel, he claimed as his own. He is of the people of Israel. And then further of the tribe of Benjamin. Very, very significant family in Old Testament history and much could be said here. But when we see the first king of Israel, who was he? The first king of Israel was King Saul. And so we see here that Saul, King Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was born into the tribe of Benjamin. And so you can see how his parents picking up that little baby boy. What are we going to name this baby? Let's name him Saul. After the first king, after the Benjamite king, we will name him Saul. And then fourthly, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He strictly followed his heritage. He was a full-blooded Jew. He loved being a Jew. He loved being raised a Jew. And you can, you can read about how, what his life as a child would have looked like from the age of three up till the age of 16, 17, 18, being schooled with Gamaliel. And all of these different rights and privileges that all worked together, which he was actually thankful for. If you go back and read Romans 9 and verse 4, he was thankful for his Jewish upbringing. But as far as a checklist To be able to be acceptable before God, it was nothing. All of these things are nothing. The first four, again, are his inheritance. The last three are things he made choices in. He was a Pharisee as to the law. The Pharisee, a a 200 or so BC group that that wanted to adhere to to the laws of God. They wanted to obey the law of God, but over the course of time, hypocrisy became more and more a part of who they were. And so the Lord Jesus many times calls out their hypocrisy as we see in the Gospels. But they were committed not only to keeping the Old Testament law, but they also added then a whole bunch of man-made laws to go along with it. They were very, very strict. They didn't only want the law, the specific law of God. They had all these other man-made laws and commandments alongside of it that they also had to adhere to. As to zeal, he says, a persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. We read about that earlier. He dragged them out of houses and put them in prison. He's standing by at the stoning of Stephen and gives hearty hearty approval to it. We see in Acts 8 and verse 1. He was ravaging the church. He measured his religious zeal by his hatred for Christians. And he thought he was doing the will of God by persecuting these Christians. And then seventhly, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's quite a statement. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, if people followed him around in public, public and in private, his life was exemplary, above reproach. If they were doing elder and deacon training in the synagogue, Paul would be at the top of the list of candidates for positions of leadership within 
the synagogue. But he says, that's my old life. That's the old way. That's the old way I counted things. At our Wednesday night Bible study, we have uh, several teachers that, are, that come to our, our Bible study group in Clayton Heights. If you live out that way, you're more than welcome to come and join us. But we have several different teachers, and not just teachers, but the worst kind of teachers. Math teachers. And they said, just on Wednesday night, they were talking about how some kids come through the system and they only know how to do math one specific way. And there are various ways to do math and they need to learn those various ways. And some kids are completely, completely lost. They only knew one way how to do things. They only knew how to add and subtract one way. And now they're being told they have to do things a different way. And they're lost. Paul's accounting we see next. A new way to analyze profits and losses. And we see that in verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Counted. You see that past tense there? 30 years prior to his writing, he's talking about his conversion. I counted these things as loss. When I met the crucified, risen Savior, everything changed. All those things I was counting on, they're now in the loss column. I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count, their present tense, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. As a Jew, salvation was all about counting. And Paul learned that he didn't know how to count. He had to relearn how to count. He'd been counting wrong his whole life. And how about you? How are you counting? Maybe not specifically for salvation. Maybe you're not trying to keep the law. But maybe you are counting other things as precious. More precious than the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe other things are crowding into your life and you are counting them as important. And counting out those other things that are truly of importance. Paul thought when he looked at that accounting ledger and he looked at his profit and losses, he thought he was a millionaire. And he discovered he was completely bankrupt. Completely bankrupt. His pursuits his entire life were bankrupt. They were meaningless in order to earn God's merit and favor. It's not about being good enough. Those things we counted as gain at one point in time are actually losses. Actually, losses that condemned the Apostle Paul. Actually, losses that pointed to his condemnation before God, not his acceptance. And that's the way good works are if we are, if we are doing good works in order to earn merit and favor before God. They become a condemnation to us the whole time the Apostle Paul didn't know how to count. And now he's finally learning how to count. Those three days of blindness, the subsequent time that he spent with various apostles and teachers, he's learning how to count. Very important. And then fourthly, he sees, we see Paul's desire to know Christ, to look to Him and His righteousness, not our own as a way of salvation. All else is rubbish. And literally, that word there means excrement. Rubbish means excrement. It's dung. It's nothing. It's of no use. Verse 9, 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, next time we preach from this book, I want to backtrack on these things a, li- a little bit. And so we're going to just quickly go over these things as time evaporates on us. But you can see that last verse there, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Did Paul struggle from a lack of assurance? Was he unsure about his resurrection? No, he wasn't. He just looked at what he had gained in Christ and saw himself as so unworthy of gaining so great a salvation. That's what he's getting at here in that last verse. This righteousness that comes through our union with Christ, it is by faith in Christ alone, and it is a gift of faith. Luther had that famous prayer where he says, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. And that's what God does for us in salvation. He gives us the command, and yet He also gives to us what we require to fulfill that command. Paul wanted to know Him. The one who had made Himself known to Paul back on that road, He spent His life wanting to know Him in a deeper way and wanting to see that everyone else knew Him as well. He wanted to know Christ and He wanted to make Him known. And so good works, what is the point of good works? Well, you can read Westminster Confession, chapter 16. It talks all about good works and its place in the Christian life. But it makes it very, very clear that good works are a fruit and not the basis of our salvation. It's a fruit of our salvation. We looked in chapter 2 that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We do not work for our salvation. We work out our salvation. And so just a few words of application as we come to the last few minutes here. Paul had a past. Paul had a past. And many of us have a past as well. And we look at Paul's past and we see the hatred that he had. That's what Judaism taught him was hatred. And the grace of God taught him how to love. Taught him how to reach out. Taught him how to be others focused. And he spent his life doing that. But he had a past. And he had to be separated from that past. He was separated at birth. At the new birth, he was separated from that past legalistic lifestyle that he had in Judaism. And some of you have come to Christ and you've had to give up things as well. You've had to give up friends. You've had to give up habits. You've had to give up various things in your Christian life. Perhaps things that you were doing, that you were involved in, that were sinful. And it's a radical change, just like the Apostle Paul. You're going down one path, and all of a sudden, in repentance and faith, you're going a different direction. And God has wonderfully changed you. And maybe for some of us, you need to do that. You haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and in faith. And maybe you're still relying on your own works, that you do think you are good enough. That God will receive you into His presence when you die. Lots of people think that. That God is just 
He's going to give me a free pass. He's going to look at all the good things that I've done. I haven't done any of the heinous sins. I haven't done any adultery. I haven't done any of the murders and all these different big sins. But even one of the smallest sins is enough to condemn us and we need the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could say, yeah, but I'm religious. I go to church and I've done this and I've done that. But has your heart been changed? That's the question. Has your heart been circumcised? You know, this wedding ring that I have on, it shows that I've made a covenant commitment with my wife. And I'm in relationship with her in that covenant relationship. But I could walk around with a wedding ring and not be married. I can look like I'm married, but I'm not married. And we can live our lives that way sometimes as well. We can look like we're Christians and not have that heart change go on within us. And maybe our problem is not so much the law and legalism, trying to be good enough, but maybe it's our liberty. Maybe that's our struggle. We think, yeah, yeah, I've done this, I've done that. I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I've given myself to Christ. And yet in our liberty, we can have many different struggles as a Christian. If you were in my Sunday school class last week here, you would have learned about Augustine of Hippo, 4th, 5th century. Uh, his father was a pagan and his mother was a Christian. And he moved away to get away from his home around the age of 17 and he rejected his mother's religion and he filled his boots with sexual, sexual immorality and other sins that he could partake of. And this finally caught up with him. He became a press, uh, professor of rhetoric in the city of Milan and there be, he began to attend a church that Ambrose was preaching at, Bishop Ambrose, and he liked his preaching and he went back week after week and his sins began to mount within his heart and build and the conviction within his life became such that it was unbearable and he couldn't live with himself any longer. He was unsatisfied. All these things he thought were going to, he thought were going to bring satisfaction in sinful living didn't and they never will. It's idolatry. And so Augustine was struggling and one afternoon, he was wrestling with these things and he was outside for a walk and he heard a small child singing repeatedly, take up and read, take up and read. And so he had some of the epistles of Paul at his home and he went home and he picked up the epistle of Paul to the Romans and he read from Romans 13, verses 13 and 14 that say, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's all he had to read. And he writes, No further would I read, nor needed I, for instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light as it were of serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Peace with God. Peace with God. Augustine's conversion then sent shockwaves throughout his life. He resigned his professorship and he went on a pursuit of God and pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ to know Him. And now how about you? How about you? 
Those things in Augustine's life were rubbish. And he put them away. How about you here this morning? Now maybe you've been a Christian for a while. And again, legalism's not your problem. But maybe your liberty is. And maybe along the way in your Christian life, you've picked up various pieces of garbage. They've attached themselves to you and Satan's got a foothold into your life. And maybe some of these same sins that we see in Romans 13, 13 and 14 that were so powerful in the life of Augustine have got a grip in your life as well. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, quarreling, jealousy. Drunkenness. Your use of alcohol. Now I know abuse does not rule out proper use. Abuse does not rule out proper use. And we see plenty of abuses of alcohol around us in our society. But it is a warning to us. It is a warning to us that we can use our professed use, proper use, as a cloak for abuse. We need to be very careful about these things. Satan is wanting a foothold any way he can get it in our lives. Proper use can turn into abuse if we are not careful. And what about sexual immorality? Another plague in the world and in the church. How are we doing with that one? Sexual intimacy in unmarried couples. You know, often people will say, how close can I get to the line, to the edge, without going over the line? You ever heard that one? It's entirely the wrong question. We should be asking, how far away from the line can I stay? That's what wisdom would ask. How far away from the line can I stay so that I don't put myself into that situation? Psalm 36 talks about those who practice sin that there is no fear of God before their eyes. They live like atheists, like God doesn't exist. In verse 2 of Psalm 36, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. They're inflated with pride. His iniquity cannot be found out and hated. They think that their sin will not find them out, even though God's word tells us our sins will find us out. And so we need to do the opposite and detect those sins in our hearts, and to hate them, and to forsake them, and to flee to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. The Puritan John Flavel says, to keep the heart is to carefully preserve it from sin, which disorders it. Our lack of peace is often because of sin in our lives. My prayer for us this morning is that if we did not know how to count when we got here the right way, God's way, that we will learn from the Apostle Paul how to count those things that are truly important and that we would get rid of all of the rubbish that is in our hearts and lives so that we might pursue God with all of our might and all of our strength and all of our soul to the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we do come to you and we thank you that we can stand before you robed in the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness foreign to us, a righteousness not our own. 
And we thank you that Christ has fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law. That you make the command for us to be righteous, and yet you give us the way to be righteous in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you and pray that we would put away all the idols of our heart. We would put away those, that rubbish that we collect in this world along the way and that we would live lives of purity of heart and of mind before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll now ask